Good morning. I'm Abby Nelson, and I'm a covenant member here. Um, I'm a part of the St. Clair MC, one of the St. Clair MCs. Um, and this morning I'll be reading Matthew 4, starting in verse 12. That's on page 809 in the Black Bibles. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his, frames, his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Good morning. My name is Kent. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Soma, and I'm excited to jump into a new series with you. But uh, we need God's help, so let's pray. Father God, Lord, I'm just, I'm moved by the image um, in your scripture in Matthew 4 of people dwelling in darkness and all of a sudden a light flickering on. And I'm moved by that because I know that I, I, to a small extent, have felt what that is personally. And I know there's many here in this room that have experienced that. Um, the idea of just not knowing what to do and where to go and all of a sudden you show up and darkness has to go away. And Lord, that's not just true of the first moment that um, we see you. That's not just true of some five-year-old coming to faith, 25-year-old coming to faith, 45-year-old coming to faith moment. Lord, it's also true of you continually showing us that here's how you walk into the light out of darkness. Here's how you experience life and life to the full. And Lord, um, I believe wholeheartedly that this season can be a season where many people can see that through these words that you've written that go on from Matthew uh, 4 that go into 5, 6, and 7, Lord. Uh, your, um, possibly your magna opus on just what it is to be human and what it is to have a vision for flourishing in humanity. And Lord, I pray that that would be true. Lord, I pray that we would see these as words that are shaping us into what you've designed us to be. And they're an invitation to becoming fully human. But Lord, I pray 
that we would not look at these words as those that which we can enact ourselves. Its standard is, is way too high. But Lord, you are offering entrance into your kingdom in which people will begin to look like these things. Lord, let us see that. Um, let us believe that. Uh, let us become that and let that overflow out of us, Lord. Let the kingdom come in us and f- overflow out of us as we move into this city, as we move into our weeks and into our lives, uh, as we move throughout, Lord, that we would be one who the kingdom is always around and always spilling out of. But that must come true for us first before we can give anything that we don't have. So, Lord, I pray that in your spirit, uh, in your son Jesus' name, through your spirit's power and because of your father, uh, father's authority. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are starting a new series, and we are going through the Sermon on the Mount. We are hoping to take months and months, actually, to do it. We are going to take a very slow crawl strategy at going through the Sermon on the Mount. Like, we don't get through the Beatitudes until, well, uh, not well, but at least into 2018 is kind of pace we're talking. And so, in that with Sermon on the Mount, whether you are overly familiar with the Scriptures or the first time you've ever touched a Bible is the black hardback one in your hand, which was your gift our gift to you if you don't own one, um, it's unlikely that you have no reference point for the Sermon on the Mount because of its familiarity just in culture. I mean, this is where you get greatest hits of Jesus' teaching, uh, such as do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, and love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, all that sort of stuff. And so that's studied in secular institutions of literature and, and just even basic philosophy of, of behavior and, and ethical rights. And Gandhi is famous for, for loving the Sermon on the Mount. It transcends uh, borders of religion itself. And I would say this also, the Sermon on the Mount is the longest recorded vision of the good life that Jesus lays out for us. And that's what I would say is being laid out. I mean, there's something beyond just the familiarity of, hey, I've heard these words before. I think these are familiar to our souls. You look through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you just glance your eyes over some of the words, and it feels like there's a resonant just moment in our lives where we say, yeah, that's what life should be like. That's how people should treat each other. That's how I should treat other people. And this is, I say, the longest recorded sermon of Jesus because, no doubtedly, he preached ones longer than this. I would even argue that the Sermon on the Mount was much longer than this. You read it from beginning to end, it lasts 17 minutes. And I don't know, I just have a hard time believing that Jesus, like, gathered all these people up in the wilderness out on a mountain, preached for 17 minutes, and people were like, whew, nailed it, we're hungry, let's go. Um, And so in that, there's, like, probably the idea that this was what Jesus was teaching on, this content, these ideas, teaching on over the course of days. And that he was always teaching these concepts. He was always teaching these truths and these realities. That this was what Jesus was all about. In fact, I think you can take all of these things and, and boil it into the most biggest passion topic of Jesus' life, the thing that he taught on the most, which is a really interesting question to ask yourself, by the way. What is the topic, the thing, that which Jesus was always talking about? If you just dropped in random day into a synagogue or onto a mountain and Jesus is teaching, what is he talking about in its essence, base form? I mean, some people go with like maybe his most popular teachings, such as the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Or an iteration of that, both love your neighbor as yourself, and the more extreme iteration, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And those are extremely popular and extremely important teachings. 
However, they are only a fruit of the more foundational reality of what Jesus taught. If you want to know what Jesus was talking about all the time, you don't have to wonder because Matthew's going to give it to you in chapter 4, verse 17, where he says this. From that time, Jesus began to preach every day, all day, all the time, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the essence. That's the most talked about subject, particularly in the book of Matthew. You're like, I don't really think he, I remember him talking about the kingdom of heaven all that much. In the book of Matthew alone, he's going to talk about it 50 times. He's always talking about the kingdom of heaven. And again, all these things about loving your enemy and, and not storing up treasure on earth, but, but storing up treasure on heaven, giving your finances, your resources away, not worrying. Those actually all are really terrible pieces of advice if there's not something underneath all of it that makes that all good advice. There's a deeper reality that is going on. And and so all of those things just become the most logical conclusion of how anyone would live if the kingdom of heaven truly is at hand. But we don't travel in that currency of kingdoms and kingdoms of heaven. Like we know, like, yes, that's something that Jesus may talk about a lot. But if I really ask you, okay, what's the kingdom of heaven? I mean, you could probably tell me certain things that, you know, like, oh, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, Jesus said, or the kingdom of heaven is like a man who built his house on a rock versus the one who builds it on the sand. You know, like there's all things you could say, and the kingdom of heaven is referenced a lot. But, but if we really get on like, what is like the root idea of this kingdom of heaven that Jesus keeps talking about. And that's actually what I want to talk about with you this morning. That's what I want to set up. I think if we're going to know what the Sermon on the Mount is about, we have to be intimately acquainted with what the kingdom of God was about and all that God has been doing throughout history to bring the kingdom of God to the moment of Matthew 5 and to this moment right here in Indianapolis in 2017. And so that's just simply what we're going to do. We're going to walk through what the kingdom of God is, which again, we're at a little bit of a disadvantage because you don't use kingdom. Like I don't use the word kingdom. You don't use the word kingdom unless you're the person who, you know, dresses up when they go to Gen Con, in which case, or plays Dungeons and Dragons in your home. And then you might, and that's cool. Uh, But yeah, for most of us, it's just like, that's Game of Thrones talk or, you know, Knights of the Round Table or whatever, you know, reference you have to some medieval point of life. And yes, that's true. But on some level, we do all know what kingdom is getting down to, what the essence of it. We're talking about someone's kingdom. We're talking about who is in charge, who calls the shots whose word cannot be trumped. That's a loaded term all of a sudden in our life and time. I'm sorry, either way. But in this world, who is the one who has authority? And so, if Jesus is talking about the kingdom, if he's talking about a place of the kingdom of heaven, a place where he who rules heaven is the one who calls the shots, then we're talking about an idea where a place, uh, not even just a place, a state where God is in charge. And you're like, well, that's what Jesus talked about? Like, that doesn't really seem all that, like, you know, profound. I mean, the idea that God is in charge. I mean, if you believe in God making the world, if you're going to accept that paradigm, I think you would say, okay, yeah, we know God's in charge. I mean, that's why the Bible says pray to God, because he's the one who's in charge. He's the one who can actually do something about it. He made everything, so yeah, he's in charge of everything. That's why you get Psalm 93. And all throughout the Bible in the Old uh, Old Testament, you're going to hear them talk about things like the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the word is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are everlasting. It's a repeated concept all throughout the scriptures. 
But in one level, yes, God is in charge. But we also have to deal with this other reality in Scripture. And that is on some level, there's a clashing of kingdoms going on. And you see it in places like the New Testament. You see it in Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, where it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Which is interesting. They're talking about someone who just like rules the air we breathe. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you've got both the prince of the power of the air, the sons of disobedience. These are not just bad 80s hairbands names. They are also references to the idea that there is a ruling kingdom in this world that is at odds with God's kingdom. One of them being the demonic, the evil, the, the personified evil in Satan himself, and the other being us, that we are the ones who are against God's kingdom. I mean, you get that again, right from the jump of Scripture. Genesis 1, 26 through 27, God has just made everything. He makes humanity, and this is how he makes humanity. He's going to lay out his vision statement for humanity as he makes them, and it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, important word, come back to that, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created his, uh, in his image man. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So we talked in our Genesis series maybe about a year ago about the Imago Dei, about there is this image of God, is how we would translate that, in each and every one of us, which means that there is something about in our DNA of what it is to be God. He's put his thumbprint on all of us. And in that, we have capacities outside of all of creation, that, that we have just, you know, communicative and relationship capacities outside of creation. We have moral capacities. It's not just the sense of, like, we trample the weak and, and feed the strong. There's something about us that says, no, we need to advocate and stand up for the weak. That there's something unjust about when the weak gets trampled over by the strong and we desire to put an end to it. And we have just this capacity to build meaning and seek beauty and call it that. No one else on this planet's doing that. And so here we come in with these unique capacities and then something also that is just intrinsic to what it is to be made in the image of God is that we have dominion. That word dominion comes from the same place as kingdom. That's why it ends with kingdom, D-O-M, and it begins with dominion, D-O-M. To have dominion is to have rule, to have reign. And I don't know if you would say what you do in this world is ruling, but that is what God sees that you're doing. He says, hey, I've made everything. I'm in charge of everything. I'm the one who owns and, and, and calls the shots on everything. But I am going to give my power and authority to humanity. And when you make and create, you're actually joining God in the creation of the world. He's like, hey, I didn't finish this thing. I made one garden. I said, now you guys take the rest of it. And so we actually are ruling well or poorly over all of creation. You can argue, yeah, that we're not doing it well, but you can't argue that we are doing it. And so if that's the reality that God's going to lay out, then it's like, okay, so we've got the big given reality through the Imago Dei. We have dominion. But the problem is, is that it goes woefully wrong in chapter 3. If you've been around church, you know the story, but let's just go ahead and just bring it up because we need to continue to relive it because we continue to live out of the reality of it. And so you have Genesis chapter 3 where another person enters in, the prince of the power of the air, the one who's called a serpent, he's called a liar, he deceives the man. 
and brings the man and the woman into corruption. And he basically tells them, hey, you need to do the one thing that God has given you all of this. He's given you a world of yes, and you need to go after the one area where God said, hey, if you want to be under my rule and my under authority, this is the one thing I'm holding on to. And that's the one thing that he said you need to have. And so we take the bait, we go, and we enter into a place where now we are at war with God's kingdom. And not just like we collectively, you personally, that's your biggest issue in the world today, is that you're at war with God. And you're at war with God, not like you're like actively like shaking your fists at him, though that is some people, but you're like every day in this moment where you're like, okay, there is a way in which God has called me to submit and humble myself and be a creation and, and not the one who is calling the shots and saying, hey, here's my vision for humanity. But then we see like, hey, I don't want to be told what to do, or at least I want to edit the list. Or I, I'm, I'm cool with submitting to God as far as he gets me closer to this relationship or doesn't get in the way of that relationship or he gets me closer to this career or, or this opportunity and certainly doesn't jeopardize my chances for any of it. And if he does, then, yeah, I mean, we have to go our separate ways because that's involving himself in my kingdom in a way that I'm not comfortable with. And so we have this place where we're at war with God and that becomes the background scenario that we gave in to deceptions and we give in currently deceptions and powers of this world that seeking autonomy, seeking what you want over what God wants for you will bring you your most life, joy, happiness, liberation, even though you have pretty much your entire life of objective evidence to the opposite. And so in that moment, in that background, Matthew's gospel is going to set up the idea of what it means to then repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's not just as simple as like, okay, so like you give up your kingdom and now you embrace God's kingdom. I mean, ultimately, I guess it is that simple, but there's just a lot more complex realities going on in that. In fact, the book of Matthew is going to lay out a lot of things that's going on as Matthew steps onto this, or as Jesus steps onto this uh, page, even from Matthew 1, I mean, from the very start of the book. In fact, I would like to just look through these open couple chapters of Matthew leading up to the Sermon on the Mount so you can just kind of see all of the loaded imagery that's going on through this book and you can see the kingdom of God is something Matthew and Jesus are very concerned about. And, and so as we do that, um, we just, I, I'm going to use a concept that I found from Dr. Tim Mackey, who uh, if you guys are familiar with the Bible Project, he's, you've heard his voice because he speaks over the Bible Project and he's that guy. Um, if you don't know that, it doesn't really matter. I, I think he's a very brilliant guy and I think he's really influenced a lot of what I've my thinking, in fact, he's heavily influenced this sermon, you'll find if you ever uh, listen to his teaching on the kingdom of God, I'm pretty much just ripping him. And so uh, either way, I think it's effective teaching. And so uh, he also uses a device that I am going to straight up rip. And he says, Matthew, or even the beginning of any of the gospels is like a good movie poster. And good movie posters, if you're into movie posters, I was into collecting movie posters at once upon a time in my life. Um, and that ended when I got married. Um, and <laughs> They all got thrown away, and so either way, they're not thrown away, they're just in the basement under stuff covered in mold. And so either way, um, that, so I used to be really into this, and good movie posters, there's a certain technique to a movie poster. And he says to really illustrate this, you can think of one of his favorite, and I'll go ahead and use it, because I, I mean, all the ones I have, I don't think go, do it better than this, of the very first, not episode, but movie of Star Wars, which is episode four, which we won't get into that, but either way, uh, <laughs> A New Hope, classic, Luke Skywalker, R2-D2, Death Star, Darth Vader, that one. And so in that movie poster, if you know the classic movie poster, what you get on it is the main character front and center, Luke, and he's pointing a laser gun at you. To his side, we have then all these other characters and pictures and 
heads of people in little scenes, little vignettes. And a good movie poster is meant to, you're meant to look at it and you look at all these characters, look at all these scenes, and it's meant to like draw you in. Like I'm intrigued what all these have to do with each other and all how these play in together. Or if you've seen the movie, you should be able to look at the poster and be like, that's the whole story right there. I can tell you everything that happens by just walking through this poster with you. And that's what you actually get in Star Wars in that poster. You get Luke front and center, and then to his side, you get Princess Leia, and you get Han Solo, and you get other people. Then you get Obi-Wan Kenobi down here, and you get CP3, uh, C-3PO. Yeah, got it? Okay, good. Uh, and R2-D2. And you get then over uh, Luke's shoulder, you get Darth Vader standing with a lightsaber, like ominously looking over. You even get people like Governor uh, Tarkin, who is like a lesser bad guy who designs the Death Star. And a lot of you are just like, okay, I'm not the Gen Con guy. Like, you're totally losing me right here. I didn't think you were either, and I'm not. I'm just basically reiterating things I've heard. And so, but beyond that, you get all these ideas and all these scenes. I mean, you get the Death Star. You get, like, you know, little X-wings, you know, swooping in. And I know just even the amount that I'm butchering this right now, there is a Star Wars fan right here, like, calling this blasphemy. But either way, (laughs) you get all of these pieces. And they're all meant to illuminate the story of the one central character who sits in the middle. And that's what you get in Matthew. You get all these little pictures, all these vignettes, all these characters who are showing you what is the main idea of the character in the middle. And so if Jesus is the character that sits in the middle, then this movie title would be called The Kingdom is Now Here. Or you could call it the lead up to the Sermon on the Mount. And in that I just want to walk through what would be on this movie poster right now in Matthew. And so I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 1, you get a big genealogy, which you don't read when you have to. You just skip over it and say, I don't know who these people are. Uh, but you do probably then look at least verse 1. And verse 1 is all we need for this. And that you get the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, in that genealogy, that word genealogy is interesting. Because the word that's used there is genasia. It's not the normal word that you would use for a genealogy. In fact, it's where we get our word Genesis. They are meant to think of a book called Genesis. He's saying, hey, this is the Genesis of the Lord Jesus. Because he's saying, yeah, this is the genealogy. This is his family line. I'm going to show you that. But I also want you to have in mind the very first book of the Bible. Because what happens in that book? God creates everything. God starts a beautiful, ordered universe. And so I'm sending in one who hears his genealogy. Here's who he is. We'll get to that in a second. But he is starting to renew all of creation. All of the universe is receiving a new genesis in him. And then you get these three titles for him, and I'm going to take them out of order. You first, uh, you get Jesus the Christ, you get the son of David, and the son of Abraham. We'll start with son of Abraham. So God, when, when humans go and take and say, we want to do our own kingdom, he starts a plan to initiate the salvation of the world. And he does it through this man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And he be, creates a people and he makes them the Israelites. And he says, hey, you're going to be the people who I'm going to then bless all the nations through. And, and you are going to be the one who enters in the salvation of the world. But the problem is, is they don't do it at all that they get the view of humanity, they get the vision, they get the protection from God, they get the, hey, here's the way that you're going to live and you're going to be different and you're going to uh, step into what it is to be in my kingdom, and they completely fail. And they go off the rails. And so now God's plan B looks about as successful as plan A. And so now you have this person coming forward, though, who says, hey, he's from the line of Abraham. 
He's from the one who God said he's going to bless all people through. He comes through that line. He's the beginning. He's the renewal of that, that whole idea gone bad. In fact, you get John the Baptist here in another chapter, in chapter 3, and you're like, John the Baptist is this crazy guy, like weird, you know, nutso, like Albert Einstein hair, wearing ghost skins, eating locusts and honey. And it's like this idea that he's like living off the land. He's out in the wilderness, which is a really familiar place for the people of God to be. But he's out in the wilderness. He's by the Jordan River, and he's baptizing people in the Jordan River, which is weird because they like, don't have Jesus in the cross, and baptism is like this, like it is a concept then, but it doesn't mean to us what it meant to them. And what he's basically saying is the last time they were at the Jordan River, the people of God, it was when Joshua led them across into the promised land. And he said, hey, we're starting this whole, we're entering the promised land, we're going to bless everybody, we're going to be blessed by God and protected here, and then this is going to span out the rest of the world. And then, of course, then it goes terribly wrong. And it's like John goes back to the River Jordan to baptize people, to wash people clean, and saying, hey, I'm renewing that story. It's starting over, that God has sent me to say, hey, the plan of blessing everyone through this people, it's still on. And so then when Jesus shows up and he gets baptized, all of a sudden we get the real vision of what's happening here is someone getting baptized in the Jordan and walking out and renewing all things. And then you also get that he is the son of David, which is a promise in 2 Samuel that that God said, hey, I'm going to take the line of David, which David, everyone knows him as the guy who killed the Goliath, but he's also a king and a man after God's own heart. And he's a great king, but not the king that God's going to bless everyone through. He's like, no, I'm going to make you, I'm going to bless everyone through a king, but it's going to be someone through the line of David, another king. In fact, that's actually what Jesus the Christ means. Christ, not Jesus' last name. It wouldn't be like Christ, party of two. It is not like what you designate him as. It is rather a title. It is the king. So you can just read Christ. You can read he's the Messiah. He's the king. Jesus the Christ is Jesus the king. And he's stepping onto the world. And so now you get all these stories that, that not only the genesis of all the universe and the realm that we see, but also the, the biblical story are all getting a new, fresh renewal start in this person. And all of a sudden we start to get all these little vignettes. We see immediately that he is not, like he is human, but he's more than human. We see that in chapter one that he's uh, born of a virgin. A virgin conceives him to say, hey, he's going to come and he's going to be a man, but he's not going to be inside the system. He's not born of a father. He's not, he doesn't have a father. So he's, he's in some ways outside the system because he is in himself divine. He's both God and man at the same time, which solved the huge riddle for them that Isaiah posed to him years earlier when in chapter 40 he says, hey, God's going to come and he's going to renew you. And then another one says, it's going to be God's servant. It's going to be a person. Well, then how do you do both? You get it in Matthew chapter 1, where a God slash man has come into reality. And then we start also getting like, you know, foreign kings coming to just, you know, bow down and worship him, which is like, you're always just like, why, like, why do we need the wise men? They're just like, they take up room in the nativity. It's just a reason to give six-year-olds, like, put, like, cotton balls, beards on them, and, you know, give them no lines in a pageant every year. And beyond that, though, it's the idea that, hey, these foreign rulers, foreign kings, are coming, and they observed in the stars. They said, hey, when a king is born, when somebody really important is born, a star just gets born at that same time. I mean, every time a king is born, a star gets its wings or something. And so they see that star, they start going towards it. And then it's the idea that like the birth of Jesus, when he came into reality, it shifted the and displaced the entire world that we're in. And so they start going towards it. And now you get these kings bowing down to him, kings bowing down to him. There's a king of kings. And not only that, they're foreign kings, which again in Isaiah, 
God said, hey, I'm going to bring all nations and all people to myself, and they're going to find their life in me. And you get that, and all of a sudden it starts happening. But then there's this very non, well, no, there's a spoken and an unspoken character here also on the poster. Uh, one of those would just be uh, Herod, the king of the day who uh, was over the region that Jesus was born into. And he, he finds out from the foreign kings that, hey, there's another king. Kings don't tend to like it when another authority gets born in their midst. So he just sends out a decree that you must kill all babies born of this age, which is interesting on two levels. One, it sets Jesus up as somebody else and a figure of somebody else. Because I don't know, because Jesus then, his family floods, uh, flees to Egypt and they come back from Egypt. I don't know if you're familiar with the Bible and are familiar with a person who comes out of Egypt and is also known for being spared as a child when the ruler tried to kill all the babies. But basically you get Moses and that God is saying, hey, this person is going to be a better David. They're going to be the line of Abraham and he's going to be a better Moses. Someone who's going to lead people out of the, uh, out of the slavery and lead them into on, and teach on a mountain on what it means to be in relationship with God. And so in that moment when Herod is fulfilling prophecy by saying, hey, I want to kill this guy, so I'm going to kill the babies, you get, of course, the idea that this would be a very unpopular idea to a king. But but I would say Herod, he's just just Governor Tarkin. I mean, he's a bad guy, but he's not the main upfront bad guy. The one looking over Jesus' shoulder is a much more powerful king. And you get Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the emperor of the Roman Empire in which Jesus is born into. Caesar Augustus himself would be very, I mean, when you read Matthew, when you read the book of Matthew, this is such loaded imagery. You would be looking over your shoulder as a first century reader, be like, like, I don't want the wrong person to overhear me listening to this because it's treasonous. If you don't see that, just see how Caesar, there is a, temple dedicated to Caesar about 25 years before Jesus comes onto the scene. And this is what it says, is etched into it. It says, the most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling and tending towards dissolution, he restored it. This is Caesar again. Once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, all cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the, provi- uh, the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas, having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times, all the prophecies, you might say. The birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news, or translated gospel concerning him. See, when Jesus announces he's coming into the world, when the gospel writers write that, they use the most loaded terminology. They say, hey, how do we get at the idea of what's happening Okay, you know, like when Caesar comes in and announces he's making all things new and he's the savior and all things are going to find their yes in him and he's fulfilled all the prophecies. It's like that, except it's the guy who actually is doing it. And he's walking onto the scene and Caesar would not be about that. This is highly treasonous material. I've said this story before and I heard this story that Christians used to have 
And uh, if you go to Europe now, you can see cathedrals. And in cathedrals, there's like this like flow to a cathedral. You walk in and you see the ornate, beautiful altar. And then as you walk out, you see these like half, uh, a bowling ball split in half, and it's just solid on top. And if you ask your tour guide what that is, they'll tell you, well, those are a replica of how they measured grain in the marketplace. But they're also a reason of why, or a story of how Christians wouldn't play the game. They weren't a part of the kingdom. And that's because they would take, you'd be in the marketplace and you'd see those little half bowling ball things. And what you do is you'd pour grain on it. And then whatever like fell off, and I should say maybe instead, whatever remained through its surface tension, that just, that was a unit of grain and you sold that. And so they were made of like steel, And so what would happen is you'd have, when Jesus really starts to undermine Caesar's authority, and all of a sudden Caesar starts freaking out about it, he tells his guards, go find the Christians. And as as they find the Christians, they would take them to one of those blocks and say, say that Caesar is Lord. And when they would not, Christ is Lord, they would bash their heads against the measuring blocks until they either would recant or they die, claiming, I'm not a part of this kingdom. And so that Christians said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get replicas of those, and we're going to put them right by the exit doors. So when you walk in, you're meant to see the glories of God and remember who he is and remember whose kingdom you're a part of. As you walk out, you remember whose kingdom you're not a part of and how you're not playing that game. It's a highly treasonous, controversial situation that Jesus is walking into. But then it's like Matthew is just like playing with you because he lays out okay, those are all the villains, but now he's going to do this little, like, demotion process. Because he's like, hey, Herod, he actually is not on the poster. If anything, he's like a stormtrooper. And then, yeah, Governor Tarkin, that's actually who Caesar is. Because in the end of the day, Matthew 4 brings up a villain who is much more powerful than Caesar, is much more dark and ominous. In Matthew 4, verse 1, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil, which is such like a lame way of saying it in our uh, language because the devil just brings up like Halloween costumes, pitchforks, horns, all that stuff, and doesn't really invoke the idea of the Satan, a title of the, op- of the opposer. And is this personified evil, which again, people are just like, that's where like I jump off with Christianity. You just get onto this whole mythology uh, uh, of weird like personified evil. I would say, yeah, okay, the Bible's never going to talk about horns and pitchforks. I mean, that is placed onto the scriptures. But it is also, I think, a much more sophisticated way to look at evil to say, you know, it's actually a personified presence. It's not a blind force that just happens to smack us in the face sometimes or we get wrapped up into sometimes. Rather, it is wise and intelligent and is making strategic moves so that you, every single time you press sin out of your life, you find like a -a whack-a-mole, six more areas seem to pop up. And every century is riddled with the atrocities of humanity, even though we know when we look at Matthew 5 through 7, I should be like this. It should be like this. We should do, and we, write, we create organizations and, and make nonprofits and vision statements of how the world should be like this. And there's something in our hearts that says yes, and yet we have no ability to do it with any level of consistency. And if you don't believe me, look at any era of human history, including this one. And I'm not talking about, oh, that's the people out there that are creating evil. I'm talking about the people in here as we walk out of the room. 
And so you get this prince of the power of the age, but then Jesus comes and he's going to face temptation, which is to say he's going to face down what Adam, the first human, faced in the garden, which was temptation to start his own kingdom and to strike autonomy. And Jesus, it's no surprise and no coincidence, he's only going to quote from Deuteronomy, which was God's law. It was God saying, hey, this is what it looks like to live into my covenant and my kingdom. And Jesus is going to say, hey, I can fulfill that. I can do what all humanity was always meant to do. I can see the good that I were meant to move towards, and I actually have the ability to live it in a no corruptible way. And so as he does that, as he steps out of that scene, then he comes immediately. And you get our text from this morning that these people in Capernaum and, and Zebulun and Naphtali, that they would see a great light. They were dwelling in darkness, and they've seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of the death, a light has dawned on them. And that light stood up and said, from that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which, at this point, you'd be like, okay, cool movie poster um, exercise. But what's that have to do with me, and what's that have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? I would say everything on both of those areas. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, I, I, I think you see, in the idea of the kingdom of God, it confronts us with our wrong view of what the Bible is doing. Because a lot of us, I don't know if this is like you, but a lot of us fall in this category. You've grown up thinking like the Bible is about like there's the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, and they're like totally separate. Jesus jumps out of one into the other and says, hey, here's where you guys are going off, but don't worry, come and find forgiveness in my cross and find peace in me, and I will take you out of that kingdom and I'll put you in my kingdom and we'll get you out of there and we'll torch the sucker. And in reality you get the beginning of the world and the beginning of creation and God says, no, I made the heavens and the earth and I made them as, one, as two overlapping kingdoms that they found their trans- the transcendent and the, the worldly were always joined together. That that's why we long for transcendence is because we were made to be connected to the kingdom of heaven at all times. And they always overlapped that God's rule was over all things and that when humanity but buys into the lie that autonomy is where happiness is found, we tear our kingdom apart. And we say, we'll take a little chunk of this, we'll take creation, and we'll just do life here. And so everything starts to break down, everything starts to fall apart, and we're not what we're meant to be. And so God now comes, and, and he's still connected, he's still touching down in areas of this kingdom, and he steps into our kingdom, not to just like take us out, but rather to say, I'm bringing this kingdom back into the one you're inhabiting. I'm reinitiating the overlap. I'm bringing the kingdoms back together. And so, in that moment, you get this lifelong process. Well, no, I guess before I jump there, you get that vision in 23. 23 is here where, uh, 423, uh, Matthew says this. And he went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. A great crowd and great crowds followed him from uh, Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. He's saying, hey, people who are sick or possessed with demons, all the things that started coming 
coming in the kingdom separated. He comes in and he starts reversing them. He starts saying, no, my kingdom's here. And I used this image a couple weeks ago, but I think it's so powerful. The whole book of Matthew put into one image is like a, a frozen world where Jesus walks through and every step he, ta- he touches, he lifts up in his footprint, there's grass and flowers and life. It's like everything he touches comes to life, if only just for a second. Because the kingdom's coming back. And then, if it's beautiful of what his kingdom looks like, the deeper beauty is how his kingdom fully comes in. When you think of an inauguration day, if you think of an inauguration of our president, you think of limousines, white houses, like famous people to pray and to sing. The inauguration day, the kingdom of God looks like crosses. He gets dressed up, but he gets put in a robe. He gets put a crown on his head, and he gives his scepter to rule. He gets made the king of this world, but he doesn't get a scepter bedazzled with jewels, rather one that is a cross. And as he gets up and lays down his life, he says, this is how my kingdom fully comes into the world. And all who would come, then he starts stepping out into the world, and he starts like seeing disciples who are, who are casting nets into the uh, sea, for they were fishermen. And he says to them, follow me. Leave your career and your identity. And they do it because he has authority, and they see that. Or he says, hey, leave your family. Let me redefine what it is for you to have career, have identity, have goals, have family. And that's what it looks like to come into the kingdom. I mean, when I became a Christian and when everyone becomes a Christian, there's a shift that happens. It's not just like a little Jesus sprinkled on top. It's like, I remember I started changing that, like the things that I had found my identity in, I started quitting organizations that I dreamed of being in my entire college career. I started diminishing the things that I said, hey, this is where I'm going to find life. It's not because, like, I had to quit them. Maybe uh, you'll have to quit things. Maybe you'll have to end relationships. Maybe you'll have to quit careers. Or maybe it's just a radical reorganizing of the priorities so that they get so far down the list that, yes, you make time for them if you can, but in so many ways, this new kingdom is what your priorities are wrapped up in. And, And so that's what happens to disciples. That's what happens to each in every one of us, and then you begin wrestling by saying, okay, if I'm to lay down, humble myself before a king who laid down his life and humbled himself for me, then how do I allow his kingdom to continue to press on the areas of my life where I have not given up my kingdom? Where I say, yeah, you can have this part, but not that. I hold on to this. Or or this area of the way that it is to be human that I don't trust will truly give me life. And I'm not just talking about abstract ideas. You're like, okay, where would you get such a list of ideas of how to conform yourself to the kingdom of God? And it's called Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' master treatise of here's my vision for humanity and the kingdom coming on this world. But it's not the litmus test. It's not the, if you are truly a Christian, you will do all these things. But it is the sense of, When you come and you submit to his kingdom and continue to put to death your own kingdom, these are the things that just naturally begin to happen in you. Not that it's effortless. In fact, sometimes you are going to fight for these realities to move into your life. But that over the next months, over the next several months of Sundays, that God is going to put onto you places where he says, you are not submitting your kingdom to me in this area, and I am trying to lead you to life to give that over. People start freaking out, just like, well, is that trying to earn the gospel? No, it's simply just saying, hey, you look at these pages, why wouldn't you want to be like this? 
that the gospel was never meant to save us out just so we could continue to sin and say praise God for his grace, though that is true on some level. But rather, it was meant to say, hey, I'm gonna bring you out of your filth, and yes, you're gonna run back there, but I'm gonna bring you out again, and then I'm gonna continue to clean you, and you're gonna run back, and I'm gonna bring you out again. But over time, and years, and confession, and holding fast, and and moving these into your life, and wrestling with my words, you're going to continue to put to death your own kingdom, and you're gonna become someone who actually loves their enemies, who actually prays for those who persecute them, who has no value for their resources, but rather finds them as ways to bring the kingdom of God into the world. You find yourself as one who is able to, to give over lust, to give over anger. I mean, isn't that what we want? Don't you want to be free? This is Jesus' vision of it. And so this is the next several months, walking through these areas, remembering that we come to crucify our kingdoms so that God's kingdom would come through us. And then when it comes into us, the kingdom explodes out of us. I mean, can you imagine us, a people that are actually doing these things and how attractive we would be to our neighborhood and our city? I mean, that's how you really start fighting all these crazy things that are going on in the news. You can rise up and revolt, or you can do the most revolting thing to the world, which is make yourself nothing so that others would become much, so that they would see you don't have stock in this kingdom, but you're bringing in another one. That's communion for us today. Communion for us is the reminder that as we come to God, it is a time of bringing our kingdom and saying, I'm laying it down for the sake of, I want to be a part of that kingdom that was inaugurated through him breaking his body and shedding his blood on a cross. And so we'll have stations around the room where you can tear off bread, you can dip it into the cup, and you can come and and identify yourself with him who is bringing in a new kingdom. If you're here and you're not a Christian, really glad you're here. But if you're still fighting for your own kingdom, and I'm I'm not saying, a lot of us are. A lot of us are there, and and we all are on some level. But if you're not willing to say, hey, I want to give up that kingdom and be a part of the other one, then don't come and take this meal because that's what this means. And so feel comfortable to stay in your seat. We're glad you're here. And then we'll have people to pray for anyone on the other side of the pipe and drape during this time. We'd love to pray for you for the good, for the bad, for... Uh, for praising God, for lamenting, um, and we'd love to be there and then bring you before the throne room of God. Let me pray for us now. Father God, Lord, I pray that you would make us a community that has the, communi- that has the kingdom of God drop into it and explode out of it. And so that we would be people that as we continue to press into these areas, we would not be guilty. We would, this wouldn't be an invitation to guilt. It'd be an invitation to continue to say, yes, I'm continuing to submit my kingdom and take on the true kingdom so that I might find true life and I might give true life by giving it up. Lord, you said the real way to find your life is to actually come and die so that we might truly live. And Lord, let us keep that vision in front of us so that we might see that in, in these next few months, you're giving us a vision of life and life to the full. And Lord, we need your spirit to enact that in us. It's not something we can do from self-effort. We'll always fall short because the standard is too high. But it only can be done in your power that you've done it and you enact it through us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.